0: Good morning, Genesis family. My name's Jenny. And before I read the scripture, I just want to go over the rules of the game. So to be clear, the game is reading scripture out loud in front of a lot of people. So the rules are the reader gets to pronounce weird biblical names however she wants. The listener, for all of you, there will be no hissing. There will be no sniggering. Sniggering's in us, we know this. There will be no um, critical comments, snarky remarks. There will be um, supportive, encouraging, giggling, heartfelt, for sure. Okay, are we good on the rules? All right, let's go. So our reading this morning is from Haggagai. Okay, it was a test, good job. Our reading this morning is from Haggai, chapter 115 through 2.9. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you, do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The word of the Lord.
1: I almost didn't pick this passage simply because I didn't want to stick somebody with having to read those names. But it was too good. I had to go with it. Good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Cook, and I've been part of the Genesis West community pretty much since the beginning. I'm also in my third year in the Master of Divinity program at Bethel Seminary. And what you learn in the third year of the Master Divinity Program at Bethel Seminary is that Greek prepositions are the work of the devil. <laughs> they don't teach me that specifically. I sort of figured that out. On my, Greek is really hard. That's what I'm learning. It's very, very good. I enjoy learning it, but it's, wow, it's a lot. What I really love about seminary is they give you all of these tools. But it's up to you then to take all those tools and put them together and try to make something practical and pragmatic that people can actually use. And that's the joy I get from being up here and being able to speak to you all. So I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to be here, and I thank Steve for allowing me to do so. This text that we're looking at today from Haggai is an interesting one in that a lot of times when you're looking at Old Testament texts, there's a lot of translation. This fancy seminary term is hermeneutics, that you need to do to that passage to get that idea, that theme, that word from God to apply to our current context. But Once in a while, you run into a passage like this one where you can literally grab that idea out of the text, pick it up, and drop it right into our context, and it fits perfectly. And those passages are really worth paying attention to, I think. And that idea is simply this, God is telling us not to get stuck lamenting things in the past, not to despair of what we've lost to the point where we're not doing what we're called to do right here and now. To put it more simply, God's asking us to be here, now. Do the work that we're called to do and not be afraid because God is with us. So I want to start with a quick prayer and then we're going to dive into the text and see how that applies in these two contexts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I, like I said, that idea is simply be here now and do the work that you're called to do and don't be afraid because God is with you. So how does that work? in Haggai. Haggai is one of the minor prophets. The distinction between a minor and major prophet is simply how long of a scroll you wrote. So it's not that Isaiah is more important than Haggai. He just wrote a lot more. Why use four words when 400 will do? That kind of thing. Haggai is only two chapters long. It's not a terribly long passage or the terribly long book in the Bible, but there's a lot packed into it. We're only going to concentrate on one specific section of it prophet Haggai was prophesying during what's called the post-exilic period. Now, there's a handful of you, and I see some of you here today, that were with me when we were up at Covenant Pines and I gave a brief sermon, which was also set in the post-exilic period. So for those folks, this is going to be a little bit of review. And for the rest of you, I'm going to try and keep it as not dry as possible. But it's important to understand the historical context. The exile occurred during the mid-6th century B.C. The kingdom of Babylonia came and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. Babylonia had come in and taken over Judah and had destroyed Jerusalem, had destroyed everything in Jerusalem, most specifically the temple, which was the center of Jewish identity at the time. And they had taken the people that they thought were worth taking back into Babylonia as workers and slaves. That exile lasted about a generation, just shy of 50 years. And it ended because the kingdom of Persia conquered the kingdom of Babylonia And the Persian king Cyrus told the Jews, you're free, you can go home. And so we're in this period of time after the Jews had returned to Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, that tells the story of rebuilding the outer wall of Jerusalem to provide security. But there's a metaphor to it about rebuilding Jewish identity at the same time as the people of God. And we're further into that in this particular text. In fact, the dates that you heard right at the beginning tell us that in the second year of King Darius on the 21st day of the seventh month The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. What that tells us is that the Jews had returned to Jerusalem, had been there for a while, and are now laying the foundation stones for the new temple. Again, the center of Jewish identity. So it's not just about building the physical building, but it's about rebuilding their identity as God's people. It's a very important time for them. You have this interesting mix of folks. You have folks that were very, very young when the Babylonians conquered Judah and were taken into exile and are now returning as much older folks. And you have folks that were born in exile and are now had grown up on stories of what the first temple looked like and the glory and the splendor of it and are now returning and trying to help rebuild that. And what you're finding, what they're finding is as they lay out these foundation stones, as they look at materials that they have on hand, as they look at the money they have to acquire the materials they're going to need, it dawns on them that this second temple is not going to match the first. It's not gonna be as big, It's not going to be as splendid. It's not going to be as jewel-encrusted. It's not going to be what the first temple was. And remember, it's not just about a house. A friend of mine I was talking to about this passage earlier this week says, why is God so concerned about having a house built for him? He's not. Remember back during the Exodus, God was perfectly content to be in a tent. That's what the original tabernacle was, just a tent. And when David wanted to build the first temple, God said, I don't really need a house. But David, no, no, we have to build you a temple. Fine, God accommodates, but David doesn't get to build it. His son does. God doesn't really need a house. He doesn't need it to be opulent. He doesn't need it to be huge. But again, this is metaphorical also. This is about Jewish identity. And so they're sitting there thinking, we've lost this first temple. We've lost this portion of our identity. And now what we're trying to rebuild isn't going to be as good as it used to be. They want to go back to the good old days. Does that sound familiar? But they can't. They simply don't have the stuff. And this is where they start lamenting the loss of this first temple. That lament turns into despair and that despair gets them stuck to the point where they're not doing the work they've been called to do. And that's where God feels the need to interject. And so we have that despair, that lament in verse three. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? This is God speaking to the people through the prophet Haggai, but he's speaking their thoughts to them. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? God's telling his people, I hear you. I hear that you're thinking that this isn't as good as the former thing and that somehow makes you less than your ancestors. But I need you to understand that's not how this works. And it comes right in the next verse. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you. God is telling his people, be here now in this moment and do what I have called you to do and don't be afraid because I am with you. That's the message for those folks in that time. And what I'm saying is that we can pluck that message up out of that context, turn around and drop it right into our context right now, here, today, Genesis. Be here now. Do the work that you've been called to do, and don't be afraid because God is with you. What do I mean by that? Again, I referenced it earlier. We hear that phrase all the time. Oh, you remember back in the good old days when you could do X, Y, or Z? Can't do that now. We hear that all the time, and the danger is getting stuck in that. I hear it in my context. I'm a Gen Xer, and when my brother and I were young on a given Saturday or Sunday, we had the run of the neighborhood. Our parents would kick us out of the house, go play with your friends, and as long as we were home by dinner, it was fine. Don't do that now. Folks, just don't do that now. Is there a bit of freedom that we have lost for our children because we're hyper-aware of the things that can happen when kids are out all by themselves? Yeah, maybe there's a little bit there. Maybe that's worth lamenting. I work at our talk radio station. We had somebody call in the other week that we're talking about gun violence and he says, you know, back in the 50s, everybody I knew had a gun and they weren't shooting people up the way they shoot people up now. Maybe that's true. Maybe gun violence has increased in some way that we don't fully get our heads all around, but we can't go back and live there, can we? That's the thing is that we like to go back and cherry-pick memories from the past. We like to go back to certain instances that we remember fondly and say, well, I would love to go back to that. But you can't go back to that one thing. You have to go back to it in in its entirety. Yeah, maybe our kids have lost a little bit of freedom in their ability to run around the neighborhood and go play. But if your kid's of a certain age, they also have a device in their pocket, and you have a device in your pocket, and it isn't that hard to figure out where your kids are on a given day. And quite frankly, you can take my cell phone from my cold, dead hands. I don't want to go back before. Are you kidding me? No way. And going back to the 50s? Yeah, maybe there was less gun violence back in the 50s, maybe. But ask any person of color, do they want to go back to a time before the Civil Rights Movement? I'm pretty sure they're going to say no. We don't get to go back. We don't. I'm here to tell you today, the universe is moving in one direction and one direction only, and that is forward. God has created a creation that has a forward trajectory, a forward momentum, a forward movement. And I can prove it. <laughs> Few of you know this, what's coming. Now we're going to talk theoretical physics. Woo! Now for those of you that aren't science people, bear with me, buckle up, it's going to be okay, I promise. Did you know that theoretically, time travel is possible? I just blew some minds. Theoretically, time travel is possible. We know this because Einstein in his theory of relativity described space-time as like a sheet of paper. Imagine I'm holding a sheet of paper flat and we put a golf ball in the middle of that paper. There's a little divot now, right? A little dip in that sheet of paper. And if you put another little pebble on there, it would roll towards that golf ball. That's how gravity works. That divot in that piece of paper, that bending of space-time, is what creates gravitational attraction. And because it's space-time, We also know that the closer you get to that golf ball, the more time slows down. We've proven this here on Earth because when the military started launching GPS satellites into orbit, they realized pretty quickly that the clocks on those satellites ran at a faster rate than clocks here on Earth. Now, it was a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second, but in GPS calculations, time is everything. You have to have the correct time, or the whole equation falls apart. So even a fraction of a second, and oh, by the way, those fractions do add up, matter. So when they launch satellites now, they have clocks on those satellites that are calibrated differently than the clocks here on Earth to keep them in sync. But that, that distance, just from here on the ground to the orbit above the Earth, is enough to throw time off by just a little bit because it's that much further away from the center of gravity. So Earth isn't the most massive object in the universe by a long stretch. So if we want to take this to its furthest conclusion, we think about the most massive object we know of in the universe, which is the singularity at the middle of a black hole. Everybody still with me? Hang with me here. Anybody see the movie Interstellar? Right? Matthew McConaughey? All right, all right, all right, come on. Well, they got a lot of the physics in that movie pretty darn right. And so there's at one point where there's these three astronauts on a mothership. They have to fly down to a planet that planet is located just outside the event horizon of the black hole, meaning that it's just beyond the, the ability of the black hole to suck it in. But it's still very much affected by the gravity of the black hole. So two of the astronauts need to fly down to this planet. The other, the third astronaut's gonna stay on the ship, but they do the calculations and they realize that due to this massive gravity distortion, one hour on the planet is seven years on the mo- mothership. So they need to be quick about this. But it's a movie. So two of them fly down to the planet, drama ensues, and they're there longer than they intend. They're there about three and a half hours. And so what they realize is by the time they get back to the ship, the astronaut that they had left on the ship aged by 26 years. They're three and a half hours older. The other astronaut is 26 years older. They have effectively leapt forward in time. Because theoretically, time travel is possible, but only in one direction. We think of time travel, we think of H.G. Wells, right? You jump in the time machine, pull the lever, bam, you're back having dinner with Abraham Lincoln. It's not how it works. There's no theoretical model by which we can go backwards in time. And I contend that that's because God has imprinted on his creation this forward trajectory, this forward movement, because that's the direction he wants us to go. Okay, so maybe you're not a science person the last few minutes, just made you cross-eyed. Okay, that's fine. It's in scripture as well, the same idea. If you look at Acts chapter 17, verse 28, we find our life, our movement, and our very being in Christ. Christ, who John says in his gospel, was the Logos that was, pre- was present at creation, became a human being, took on flesh, was crucified, was resurrected, and now sits at the right hand of God. Christ's movement is in one direction and in one direction only, and that's forward. If our movement is found in Christ and Christ's movement is forward, do the math. Our movement goes in one direction. It's not that the past is bad. It's not that we should ignore it. Nobody's saying that. But the problem comes when you lament the things that you've lost to the point where you start to despair over that and you get stuck back there and you're not doing the work that you've been called to do here. Be here now is God's message. Do the work that you've been called to do and do not be afraid because God is with you. This actually works both ways in a sense. Because there are people that get stuck in the future too, right? I know folks that are just trying to white-knuckle it through this life because if I just get through this life, then I'll be with Jesus and everything's going to be okay. That's just as distracting in the wrong direction. We are called to be here now and do the work that we've been called to do. And we shouldn't be afraid because God's Spirit abides with us. That's the message of the prophet Haggai. So what about that work? What is that work? What is it that we are called to do? Well, the simple answer, of course, is to go to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. You may recognize these verses. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's the Great Commission. So what does that mean? We often hear that phrase used with missionary work, right? Folks going overseas to spread the gospel. And that's great, noble, important work, and I'm not knocking it at all. But we get to be missionaries right here in our everyday lives as well. Everyone in this room has a job. That may be in a workplace. That may be as a stay-at-home parent. That may be as looking for a job. That's just as much a job as any other workplace, Everyone has a job, and there's, there's almost no other context of your life in which you come into more contact with more people than in your job. Whatever your job is, your vocation as a Christian, your calling as a Christian is to reflect God's love and peace and mercy to whomever you run into in this creation. And simply by living your life, doing your work in that fashion, reflecting, reflecting God's love and peace and mercy and grace, you're going to get a question sooner or later. Why, why are you doing that? Why, 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 are you, why are you not skipping this, cutting this corner or doing this thing that everybody else does? And there's your door. There's your door open. Because I'm a Christian, that's just not how I'm supposed to do it. And maybe that leads to a door being opened or a window being opened and the Spirit gets in and does the rest of God's work of converting somebody. Maybe it doesn't. That's not your job. Your job is simply to be that reflection of God's love, and grace, and mercy, and peace in this world. But it's not just that. This is Genesis Covenant Church. means we go back to the book of Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Our job as a Christian is to reflect God's love, and mercy, and peace, and grace to the rest of the world. Our job as divine image bearers is to care for the rest of creation around us. That's all the human beings, that's all the earth, that's all the any creation we can touch, feel, or see. We're called to be stewards of that. So when God says to these Jews who are looking at these foundation stones, be here now, do the work that you're called to do, and don't be afraid because I am with you. She's saying, don't worry about the fact that that temple isn't going to be as big or as opulent as the first temple was. I'm God, and I'm a God that keeps my promises. She brought her people out of Egypt during the Exodus. She brought her people out of exile. God is a God who keeps her promises, and her promise is the kingdom to come. That this house that is coming will be greater than anything you can possibly imagine. What I need you to do is the work that you've been called to do right here, right now. And in that reflection of God's grace and peace and love and in caring for creation, we get to bring about a little bit of the kingdom right here, right now. That's our calling. That's what God is saying to us. Be here now and do the work that you've been called to do to help bring about that little piece of the kingdom here, And now, God will bring about the kingdom in its full glory here as it is in heaven when his time comes. But for us here now, we get to bring about a little piece of that, each and every one of us. And sum total that together, that could be something very, very, very special. God is saying to those folks, and God is saying to us, be here now. Do the work that you've been called to do, and do not be afraid because God is with you.